We are doing episode 38 of the Being in the World podcast. From the asylum in Bombay Beach. It's windy. It's very windy. Yeah. And um, one of my biggest regrets in life was uh, during the Biennale, the last Biennale, you gave a brilliant talk. And uh, it was a from your book on elegance or against elegance, if we're going to dig down into what it means or what you're trying to say. Um, and then I asked if you could, I, my, my regret was not uh, recording the talk because it was so moving that um, you yourself cried, didn't you? Uh, drops of water that approximated tears, yes, fell from, fell from my eyes. Why? Uh, well, so... so it, there, there are actually moments in the chapter that are quite personal and quite revealing and like things I had never actually publicly mentioned before. Um, uh, but sunscreen had gotten into my eyes. And so it, halfway through this talk, I mean, I, you, you know, you're in front of like 40 people and you're reading and there's a cadence and there's a performative aspect. And I just started uncontrollably tearing. And of course, I was aware as I was reading, like, what do I do at this moment? Do I do some sort of uh, uh, explanation do I just explain it away but I realized like just for impact for like a little bit of artistic ambiguity I would just kind of leave the tears unexplained uh, until now <laughs> until now yeah yeah it was sunscreen that kind of uh, trickled out into my eyes and then um, so then I was so regretful of not recording this amazing talk and then when you entered my life again and came up to Yucca Valley and we started this podcast I was really excited when you said you would read the t the chapter from the book that you uh, that you read at your talk, and then it was a total uh, yeah, tease you. because it was the wrong, <laughs> not it wasn't the, wrong. the wrong chapter. Well, it wasn't the chapter. <laughs> it was I was my expecting. chosen chapter at the time. Um, yeah, so I mean, like I guess that one felt more. Um, so that 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 one was about kind of what it means to have your choices reduced in life, and what how how that relates to elegance and manner and pose and etiquette and all those kinds of things and kind of the, the elegance as reduction and elegance as behavioral reduction and specifically and historically, like the kind of training that often historically women have to go through to compose themselves. Um, and it just seemed more in the kind of libertine Joshua Tree Instagram life up there. <laughs> it seemed more appropriate for that. Whereas this, which is about class and conflict between class and elegance as elegance as a concept that is both embraced by low class and high class like it just seems more thematically appropriate here in Bombay Beach so finally I'm going to get my my dream come true and be able to record this uh, elegant eloquent uh, chapter slash talk and uh, so let's give uh, Patrick a a round of applause <laughs> wherever you're sitting listening to this clap your hands and welcome dr patrick house to oh. read his chapter what's the chapter called um it's called high class low class oh perfect uh, huh. things are literally flying through the room falling <laughs> onto our heads um, there goes the soundproofing uh so this is kind of told in a uh, uh, small vignette so it's a chapter kind of taken out of the middle of the book so at this point, you as the reader will have become accustomed to the way that I tell stories, but at this point, you as the listener, um, who, who is not accustomed to that, um, uh, don't yet know that it's kind of small kind of scenes that are supposed to find 
uh, I guess in the in the space between each of the scenes. That's where the the meaning and relevance of, of the of the themes are. Uh, so ten, we're just we're just going right on in. Let's do it. In my experience, uh, there's a moment in life that no prior belief about how someone believes they will react prepares them for how they actually react. It is holding a formaldehyde-soaked, intact human brain. It is heavier than they expect, denser, about as heavy, coincidentally, as a hardback copy of Infinite Jest. It is messier and somehow foldier than they expect and covered with a tough outer skin called the Dura Mater, Latin and Freudian for tough mother. Another time is when one is being charged by a silverback gorilla in a Congolese rainforest in search of elegance. With me at the time was a woman I had met on an online dating site and who had said she had always wanted to climb Mountaineer Ngongo, the largest active lava lake in the world, and see the nearby mountain gorillas in the easternmost forests of the DRC. And so she, who spoke French, and I, who didn't, would go to Goma in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I would climb the volcano and see the gorillas with her. She would help translate questions about elegance for me. Quid pro tinder quo. Many hours in, the park rangers, AK-47s at the ready, cleared some brush and revealed to us a family of mountain gorillas. One ranger silently pointed out the second highest ranked silverback, the third highest ranked silverback, three females, and two juveniles. All were relaxed, playing, or sleeping, like we had intruded on their living room, which we had. A toddler gorilla pounded its chest and fell over from the force. The trees were rustling just beyond what we could see. I looked closer, bionically, through the zoom on my camera. Not rustling so much as falling. Nearby construction, perhaps? No, no, something just out of sight was snapping trees in half with its bare hands. The air smelled sweetly of musk, like an old wet candy wrapper. One clearly remembers the sensations of the moments immediately preceding death, a strange quirk of the human brain, all things told, and one of those things that isn't obvious when you hold one in your hands. Were the scent memories still in there, the air of Combre? Were any of the memories still in there? Probably not. The formaldehyde destroyed the structures that likely underlie memory, with the cells either bursting or hardening into a lattice of unlifelike crystals never to be recovered. Would it remain the smell of the old wet candy wrapper in my brain after the first highest-ranked silverback, which had just jumped the tree line and was now charging at us, tore us both apart. And there I was with, or should I say as, my own primate brain, highly evolved in forests just like these for this very thing. We had a common ancestor, this first-ranked silverback and I, millions of years ago. And with my own fight-or-flight response and my ventromedial amygdala whirring up to task because of the precipitous pressures of those two very things that matter most in life, sex and death, reproduction and predation, and also culture, I guess, but that's stored somewhere else. And with less than a second to prove myself as something, against a charging 500-pound forearm, with leading male roles in those 80s adventure romance films watching from the forest canopy, I did something, all my evolutionary forebears, all the way back to the single-celled organism that first responded to light, which would become an eye, and the first little fish-like thing that turned a wiggling motion more efficiently into a muscular motion, all so that mammals could one day see and evade predators like I wasn't currently doing. With a grand gesture they would surely all be proud of, the height of modern chivalry, I did something highly adaptive in the heart of elegance. I stepped slightly behind her. 11. My graduate school mentor studied and lived among wild baboons in Kenya for months at a time when he was in graduate school. This is Robert Spolsky. Oh, well. Uh, occasionally sneaking up on and blow darting them with anesthetic in order to check their circulating hormone levels. He was always pretty humble about these adventures when we chatted in cozy Stanford, California but I would occasionally catch the red African sun's low afternoon glint in his eye. Quote, oh, you need a new centrifuge, do you? Why? I used to hand crank my centrifuge in the sub-Saharan summer with one hand while fending off Maasai warriors with the other. And, though I don't think he ever knew this, 
He was as close to a father figure as I've ever had. And so when I asked him for a definition of elegance one day, and he responded with, you know it when you see it, neither he nor I could have imagined the effect this act of lexical abandonment would have on my life. Which is probably how, years later, still without a definition, I had ended up in the Virunga rainforest in the Congo, in the shadow of the largest active lava lake in the world, getting charged by a silverback mountain gorilla in search of elegance and approval. 12. In his 1963 written opinion on the constitutional status of The Lovers, a pornographic film, the US Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart, rather than make a clear definition of either pornography or obscenity, which he had said is like, quote, trying to define what may be indefinable, wrote, I shall not today attempt further to define the kinds of material I understand to be embraced within that shorthand description, and perhaps I could never succeed in intelligibly doing so. But I know it when I see it, and the motion picture involved in this case is not that. 13. And so, I offered 1,000 people 25 cents online per answer to, in your opinion, what is the opposite of elegance? Nearly 80% of the 1,000 answers had to do in some capacity with class or implicit class structure. Some answers. Trashy, ratchet, sloppy. The opposite of elegance is white trash, redneck, tattoos on my backside, living in a trailer park with a baby daddy in jail. Low class, unrefined, Walmart, white trash. I live down in Texas, and when people are smoking cigarettes on a couch out on their porch, that is the opposite of elegance. Crude, boorishness, poor. The opposite of elegance to me are things that are cheap and trashy. A ball gown is elegant. A short, cheap, flimsy dress is trashy. Lawn flamingos are trashy. Well-groomed hedges are elegant. The most common single serious response was trashy, and nearly 14% of total answers. Of non-class-related answers, the rest could be broadly categorized as either a failure to move well, clumsy awkward, or a failure to remain simple, chaos, clusterfuck, kludgy. Class, movement, reduction, and simplicity were the underlying metaphors. Elegance, perhaps, has something to do with reducing noise in pursuit of signal with compression, efficiency, and economy. 14. Monterey, California. The Concorde Elegance is a stuffy car show at a stuffy golf course. The closest I had ever come to playing Pebble Beach, which for a child golfer, as I was, would be the equivalent to freebasing Disney World on your birthday, was virtually through old arcade video games. Pebble Beach is a big deal to people who can afford to go to Pebble Beach, which I never could, raised as I was under the netted wings of an unemployed parent and government subsidy, and having to sleep in a car in a golf course parking lot once because that felt safer than anywhere else. And so when I found myself in a parking lot watching a YouTube dad video on my phone, propped atop a car, learning how to tie an ascot, berating myself in that special primate way for not already knowing how to tie an ascot, because why would you? You never did belong here, did you? Outside of my first experience of non-virtual Pebble Beach, about to enter a Bentley-sponsored Cambridge, Oxford, Harvard alumni party as an anti-elegant plus one, it wouldn't be entirely accurate per se to say I had a chip on my shoulder, but if I could take the vertical ladder of class and invert its rungs into a twisted Gordian knot, then well, wait, elegance, but what is it? Right, it's supposed to be unbiased. The Bentley party had a video that watched you watch it called the Inspirator, which uses a quote, which uses the quote, latest in emotional recognition technology to intuit from the lines of your face or perhaps the color of your ascot, which colors, and thus which color Bentley, you subliminally secretly prefer. What is Bentley elegance? The Swatch guy, who you bring your subliminal color choice to, pantomimed the corporate motto for me for his definition, a quote, timeless refined sophistication, blah. I asked a woman outside who also worked for Bentley what made their cars elegant. Well, the Queen of England drives a Bentley limousine, she said. 
But does the queen make the Bentley elegant or does the Bentley make the queen elegant, I asked. The fact that the queen chose to drive a Bentley makes them both more elegant, she said. 15. Goma, Democratic Republic of Congo. Halfway up Mount Nirangongo, I heard my first mention of elegance in the Congo. A Virunga park ranger told me that, in his opinion, La Sap, known as La Sapur, had no style at all. The rangers are in a constant battle with the poachers. Flashiness of any kind out here gets you killed. In town, I was able to interview a group of local Congolese painters and artists who were not Sapur, but knew the trend well. I asked first through a translator what elegance meant to them. It doesn't matter whether one has enough money or not, whether he is rich or not. The way he appears in the society is what makes people say that he is elegant, said one artist. Said another, one could actually decide to not have food in his house, decide to not have anything just because he really wants to have this thing that is very modern that will make him look rich and look great when he's meeting other people, said another. 16. I stared at a section of the party's lawn near the Piste Resistance Bentley show car, the one you could sit in and gawk at and not destroy in the Taylor Swiftian sense, i.e. with a golf club, on display in the circular driveway. There were tall, dark green imitation hedges, like the turf from a mini-golf course crawling up the walls. Something was wrong, a soft ringing bell in my brain. The world is composed of a great circuit of meaning, constantly connected and reconnected, I recalled hearing on the radio. Or like what Paul Astor calls rhyming events, when life's experiences line up in surprising ways. Well-groomed hedges, pink flamingos. Why did that sound familiar? Okay, people buy a Bentley because the Queen does, check. And she has real hedges in London Palace, presumably, so Bentley buyers need hedges too for that classy upscale feel, check. So they surround the Bentley show car with fake hedges to make sure that the transitive class-based elegance everyone is going for isn't confused for imitation class-based elegance. I thought of a scientific study which found that male monkeys will pay in juice to look at pictures of female monkeys' asses or of the faces of higher status males, but have to be paid in juice to look at pictures of lower status males, which of course explains the tabloids at all the checkout stands. And well, what about those car magazines always nearby? Would a social primate pay in juice to see a picture of a car or just to see a picture of a higher status car, like say a queen's car, or just maybe for a side glance at a Bentley perineum? 17. Most of the country that today is known as the Democratic Republic of Congo was the private property of the King of Belgium, Leopold II, from 1885 until he transferred it to the larger Belgian state in 1908. The civilizing mission of the French colonial empire in the mid-19th century before it had transferred to Leopold II included edicts for the conversion of both the minds and bodies of the, quote, unclothed of Central Africa. One of the many commodities for export used to barter, woo, identify, and acculturate colonial subjects was clothing. Second-hand European clothing was especially useful as gifts, wrote the French explorer uh, Savignon de Braza, with an aim to, quote, lavish them always with novelties, like old clothes, especially with bright colors, and with military adornments, including coats, hats, and sabers. It is exceedingly humiliating to them to not be able to sport a hat, a shirt, and a frock coat, he wrote. A complicated legacy of this is the modern existence of La Sap, the, quote, Society of Ambiance Makers for the Preservation of Elegance, which has existed in some capacity since the 1920s. Part gentleman's society, part fashion movement, part religion, part rebellion, the Sapur, as individuals adhering to La Sap are known, are famous inside Congo for their impeccable, crisp, and colorful fashion style. According to the historian Didier Gondola, the Sapur of today claim to belong to the fourth or fifth generation of Congolese dandyism, much of which was inherited from 19th century colonial legacy, which was itself influenced by the writings of Balzac and Baudelaire on dandy dandyism. 
Gondola wrote, quote, not surprisingly, the use of high fashion as a positive identity marker, which is quintessentially what La Sap is all about, epitomized their quest for modernity and emancipation. Sap means dress, c'est sapur means to dress fashionably. A proper Congolese sapur is defined by their use of authentic high fashion suits. The labels are often left on to ensure authenticity and the clothes are almost exclusively from major designers in Paris, London, or Brussels. ESL, Versace, Karuti, and Kenzo, among others, are popular. The Sapporo lifestyle is very expensive, and yet DRC consistently ranks as one of the poorest countries in the world. How did the Sapporo pull it off? In a 2015 documentary, a Sapporo talked about his loafers to the camera as his wife folded a stack of clothes nearby and his children played outside. I bought them because as a Sapporo, I had to. You must own a pair of Westons. I saved up to buy them and it took me almost two years. Normally, if I hadn't bought a pair, I'd have bought a plot of land. Another, who identified as a civil servant, which allowed him to take out lines of credit to afford the habit, explained his suits. Quote, these are weapons. They kill, they kill. Another, quote, when your sister, who's away in the village, finds out you have a pair of shoes, which are in contact with the ground, and you paid 3.5 million for them, which is about 4,000 US dollars, when your sister is suffering there to earn money, you have to work in the field and you give her nothing. If she found out about it, would she be happy? She would curse you. The worst part of this kind of imitation, said one of the artists in Goma, was ignorant imitation. The Sapur were imitating European, not Congolese history. Or, said another, consider a dress by, worn by the pop star Rihanna. Quote, a girl here in Congo could wear Rihanna's dress even if she's just visiting her friends. If we look at the way Rihanna used this type of dress, it was maybe at a concert. But for someone who is here in the Congo, she will actually imitate that without even knowing the meaning of this dress, without even knowing the reason Rihanna used the dress. We were speaking in an art gallery and together went through the many paintings that were on the wall, deciding if any had features of elegance. Elegance in Swahili translate roughly to neat. They pointed out as the best examples of elegance, the ones that displayed authentic Congolese history, tribal drums, colors, and figures. I saw one painting that struck me as universally elegant. In physical form alone, the painting depicted a lithe, powerful, ballerina-like, long-limbed woman, curled onto her knees, naked. I asked if this was elegant to them. Quote, this does not show the Congolese elegance, said one artist. Is it because she is naked or because there's no reference to Congolese history, I asked? No, he said. It expresses something else, poverty. The fact that this woman does not have clothes means she is lacking something. The fact that she has nothing in her hands means that having food is not enough. One could have food, but if you don't have anything else, he said and trailed off. It can't be elegant because it is sad, I said. Yes, he said. 18. Winfred Menninghaus, director of the Max Planck Institute for Aesthetics, told me that someone had once showed up in a Bentley to interview him. He found it too strong to be elegant. Quote, it is not really elegant because if you only push the front slightly, it's such a hefty 600-pound horsepower thing. That's not elegant. You feel like you're in a missile. It's almost painful, the acceleration. It's difficult to doze in. You need to get used to it and to the really subtle pushes. They're over-motorized. They're such powerful engines. It's totally overdone. They could be half the horsepower. The poet Robert Pinsky, when I asked him, told me that if Oliver Hardy, the eponymous half of Laurel and Hardy, puts his finger in the air when he's sipping coffee, it's pseudo-elegance because it's an extra gesture. If the same is true for cars, Bentley wasn't even the worst offender. Am I right that the Bentley, said Pinsky, is just a Rolls Royce that chooses not to have the extra show-off gestures of the Rolls? The Rolls is like the pinky in the air when Oliver Hardy is sipping his tea. 19. Wasn't I also just miming my imagined role models running off to Africa because my graduate advisor had also, but me without really knowing why? 
In search of elegance and approval to do the requisite thumbing one's nose at the father figure thing, the details just different enough to count as rebellion, but also similar enough to count as heredity, imitating a part in some Indiana Jones meets Darwin buildings Roman. I noticed a sign on a clothing store outside um, in Goma, quote, Negro Sap Boutique. The store was small. By surface area, it was mostly wall, three of which were entirely covered with colorful fine suits. Two women and a toddler kept the shop. I wanted to ask if their husbands were Sapor and what they thought of the decisions. I thought of the documentary on the Sapor, of the men saying, of the man saying that he bought a pair of shoes instead of a plot of land. My translator, Kevin, looked at me funny, visibly uncomfortable at translating the question. So he chatted them up for a while first, but finally he let me ask. Yes, their husbands were Sapor. Why do they do it, I asked. One reason they do it, said the shopkeeper, is that if someone has money, I mean, if you have financial means, then they've got to, because there's no other way around it. It is really important to sop. Were their husbands Sapor when they first met, I asked. Was that part of the attraction? Both of the shopkeepers said that yes, both their husbands were Sapor and still are. And your children, I asked, will they become Sapor? Quote, it is a requirement for all the children to sop, not only for boys, but also for girls, she responded. I'd never heard mention of or seen in any photograph a female Sapor while in the Congo. Not wanting to leave empty-handed, I asked about the bow ties, whether I was a Sapor if I put this on. Yes, if you put this on a suit. If you have a nice shirt and then a suit, then we say that you're a Sapor, said the shopkeeper. I bought the bow tie, just in case. So I also bought at the moment uh, like a pocket square from mm -hmm. that same store. And that pocket square is what I was wearing uh, when I gave the talk. And then when I cried, I took out the pocket square and wiped my tears to prove that it was more than uh, just a, a empty fashion statement, which it had been up until that time, right? A pocket square is totally useless. But I used it to, to wipe away the tear. I, what is a pocket square? I thought I thought you meant like a pocket protector, like the nerdy. Uh, oh, I guess it's a handkerchief. You fold into like those little, like, oh yeah. you know, mountain yeah, ranges. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> it's a pocket square, right? Uh, aren't those don't people wipe their noses with them and and get crud out of their eyes? They are useful, I think. Yeah, I guess I had I had looked again looked up on YouTube right before how to tie it into like a fancy design, and you know they're mostly for show. Like you don't see anyone right. usually bringing them out. They certainly don't hand them to you know uh, uh, for people to blow their nose anymore. Right. Um, but I had never used it for anything functional, so it was almost thematically. Uh, I, I look for themes everywhere. Anyway, we're almost done, everybody. Um, so here I am outside this store. I've just bought some uh, Sapor fashion, obviously not real, but um, uh, I was playing the game and doing research. Outside, Kevin, this is the translator, told me that the women were almost certainly lying to me, that they would never criticize or second-guess their husbands to a stranger like me. Kevin grew up in Goma and explained that Sapur was not the unified thing I thought it was, that the simple story outsiders have of a unified support tradition is not actually so simple. The men, and it was always men, he said, were divided into two camps. The Kinshasa Brazzaville Sapur, who, quote, behaved just like the French guys, and the Goma Sapur. In Goma, it was slightly different because of the influence of nearby Rwanda and Uganda, and also because of the rebels. When Goma was overtaken by rebels in 2013, the Sapur disappeared from the streets. Barely anyone went outside, Sapur included. They didn't start up again in Goma until the death of a national hero, Mamadou Mustafa Ndala. After Ndala's death, the Sapur began again. Why then, I asked. Kevin was silent. There was a savior who had come. We don't really have to be afraid anymore, he said. 20. Months later, when I told the Nigerian photographer Ike Ude in his Manhattan studio the story of the bow tie and the pocket square, he made it clear I could never actually be a Sapur. 
I noticed a copy of Balzac's treatise on elegant living on the table behind him. Quote, let's say Congo becomes transformed miraculously into Tokyo or Dubai, said Uday. Sapor would just be hipsters. The Sapor, he said, could only exist in Congo. Right now in Congo, it is individual heroism amidst abject poverty. If you look at the background in which they parade around like peacocks, it's very, very appallingly desperate and abject. George Bush once referred to Karl Rove with a Texan colloquial phrase as a turd blossom. So in a way, the Sapur are like that. They're this flower that blossoms in whatever shit you like. Uday is a modern dandy. He has been referred to as a, quote, black prince of elegance, a phrase he hates because of its clunky single entendre, like the famed 19th century dandy Charles Baudelaire. Vanity Fair named him to their best dress list in 2015. Diane von Furstenberg, first lady of fashion, called Uday one of the three most distinct distinctively stylish people to have ever lived. I asked if he thought the Sapor dress well, <clears throat> because it feels good to dress well. Oh yeah, said Uday, who knows many Sapor as friends. It's a consolation, definitely, amidst abject poverty. And also for their admirers, too. They get to see a flower in a cesspool of rubbish. Everything has failed. Everything is a disaster. So you have a handful of, I would say, heroic individuals. It is a form of consolation, because when everything else has failed, there's no government. There's no infrastructure. There's nothing except some men who elected to heroically defy all the odds and show themselves as anything but defeated. Uday attended an English boarding school after arriving in New York City from Lagos, Nigeria in 1982. He said that the Sapor and DRC have become a religion in a way because of the very specific rules of Franco and Belgian colonial design, which required that their subjects, quote, ape their colonial masters. The French, he said, ruled from both front and behind, even down to how you baked your croissant. It had to be Parisian style and how you say it. He mentioned a Manet painting of a dead matador superbly clothed. Quote, you're not just looking at some wretched, ill-dressed dead person. You're looking at a picturesque corpse. It sounds almost like you're saying Sapor is a shield, I asked. Like a sartorial shield against death? Yeah, he said. It's an armor. It's an armor. It's a cultural armor employed by the human animal. Because in the end, what is being clothed, what is being dressed is nature. It is nature that is being clothed. It is nature that is being dressed, he said. 21. Goma DRC was once described as the, quote, most dangerous city in the world. Monterey, California has a county slogan, quote, grab life by the moments. A, propi a proper Bentley, like a proper Sapporo, uses no more than three colors. I asked Uday what he thought about the idea that elegance could rub off like makeup onto the queen's subjects, i.e. as a socioeconomic theory whether he believed in trickle-down elegance. The queen, he said, is very, very powerful, one of the most powerful enterprises in the world. But power doesn't bequeath elegance and sophistication. Power is just power. And it comes in different forms, Nazi power, Churchill power, the King of Zulu, or Cecil Rhodes. Their power doesn't translate into elegance. I think that the Bentley woman's argument is miserably flawed, said Uday. He continued, I don't even know if the queen is elegant, but is the queen powerful? For sure, she's very, very powerful. Is the queen very, very influential? She's very, very influential. Can the queen enhance sales of Bentley because she chooses it? Sure. But is the queen elegant? I don't think so. I explained to Uday why I was interested in elegance. His answer astounded me. Quote, elegance doesn't mean the absence of imperfections, he said. It is how one negotiates, accommodates, and reconciles those imperfections that really matters. It is this dream that manifests as Sapur. What you have in the Sapur, he said, is a shorthand to having a Rolls-Royce or a Bentley or a Jaguar. 
But even if you had one of those in Congo, he added, there are no good roads to drive them on. The end. Excellent. Um, I still, I, my reaction is often, I, I, I'm so intrigued by the concept of, you know, taking on a subject like elegance in an antagonistic way. Um, but I, I can't help always think that you're a little bit attacking a straw man um, because this it's it seems like you've purposely picked a, a problematic and somewhat superficial iteration of elegance uh, you know these people buying expensive colonial <coughs> stuff uh, in a, an impoverished place of course that's terrible um, and then and the fact that it's something that you can even buy seems so crass in a way uh, when I think of elegance, in, whether it's in the, because then you, you said, you know, uh, when I first met you, we had a lot of conversations around this and you were going to attack elegance partly because it, scientists are too seduced by elegance, right? In the yeah. term, forms of simplicity and like beauty. And that just seems different from, you know, people in the Congo buying $4,000 European suits. Yeah, I actually think there's kind of separate categories and that's where, that's where, when, when I had trouble defining the word to begin with, right? I asked people I knew, like, what's a good definition? No one had a good one. They gave this, like, the Supreme Court thing, you know, when you see it. Mm -hmm. um, and then I kind of went, and that's why I asked, uh, there's this site, Mecha Amazon's Mechanical Turk, where you can <coughs> pay some allotted amount of money to get people to kind of do anything you want. And uh, yeah, I just asked a thousand people. I think I paid a quarter each or something. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the opposite of elegance, right? And so that I got those answers and those answers are data, right? I'm not interested in, I'm more of a sociologist here than like a kind of like first principled philosopher on the concept of elegance. I don't care. I don't think elegance exists outside of how people see it and respond to it, good and bad. So it exists to the degree that it shapes editors at the scientific journal Nature and how they think of some scientific studies and results as elegant versus not. I think it exists insofar as there's a there's an annual contest of elegance where a bunch of old cars that people spend a ton of expendable money on, um, uh, they you know they dress them up all nice and polish them and make sure their chrome is uh, shiny and then uh, put them on display. They don't even they barely drive them right. So like it's it's such empty waste to me. And so what I find so interesting is the where you have the same word defining both a kind of simplicity and neatness, but then also it's heavily embedded in class. And I think a lot of people, um, their first associations with elegance will be class related. It'll be elegance is my grandmother who dressed in gaudy, like a kind of walking uh, Versailles, you know, just like jangling, hoarding all the necklaces and rings she could find. Um, some people think of that when they think of elegance and some people think of like someone just uh, uh, wearing a sleek black dress with no ornamentation at all. And and so I think those contrasts are very interesting. Just as a, as someone who is completely unbiased in your investigation on a topic, you don't come at it with a theory. You just kind of you just kind of like observe some things and then make maybe a theory about those those observations. And so it just is the case that people sometimes use it to refer to class and sometimes use it to refer to like neatness. And, and what is your uh, issue with it for those of us, uh, those of our listeners who haven't listened to our other episode? And I don't remember how, how deep we went into this, but to refresh our memories, 
you think scientists are overly seduced by elegance and that the world is not elegant, right? It's messy. The brain, for example. Can you just yeah. go into that theory a little bit of yours? Yeah, I mean, the brain in particular. So I'm a neuroscientist, and um, there's a spot... There was a moment during uh, graduate school where an editor in the Nature Publishing Group came to give a talk to us neuroscientists that was kind of like, you know, if you get a Nature paper, your career is made. You you get a job instantly if you get a if you get a first author Nature paper. And um, she came and gave a talk. It, it'd be kind of like I don't know, an NBA coach coming to give a or an NBA recruiter coming to give a talk about like how to get in. And she was listing the qualities of what makes a Nature paper as if it's something different and separate. And it actually kind of is in its own way. It has its own style. But she got to this moment where she talked about, okay, it has to have technological sophistication and it's got to have like neat methods and then methods got to link in an interesting way and say something new. And, and she like physically startled. And as I remember, looked to the ground, probably didn't blush, but I remember her blushing. And then she said, and there's a certain elegance to nature papers. And I was just like kind of floored because that first of all struck me as an artistic concept and an aesthetic concept that didn't really seem to make sense. And also like, what did that mean? Like, how do you take that and then go out and do something that is elegant? Like, what is it? Can you train to be more elegant? Can you learn how to, to can you make your mice like move in an elegant way so that <laughs> they get into nature? Like, uh, you know, I was, I was running at the time, like running a colony of a hundred mice and uh, growing like trillions of tiny mind control genetically modified parasites to give to the mice and it was the messiest nastiest just like cr like n you know every single ma mouse is different every single parasite is it, like nothing about it is neat or elegant and there's nothing about the brain that is neat or elegant I don't think it's just this like evolutionary accident of patchwork mistakes accumulated over time to become like our there's so many examples of why the brain just anatomically and physiologically and the way that it works and the way that it's constructed. It's just like not how you would do it if you were an engineer from scratch trying to be neat about it. And so I, I kind of ended up um, on this qu a strange quest to try to understand what elegance is and how it related to the kind of thing that like an everyday laboratory scientist should do. How do you, how do you, how do you find elegance in your work? Can you curate it? Can you cultivate it if you need it? If you don't have it, can you buy it? If you don't have it, can you take a class on it? Um, and I kind of ended up, ended up my kind of jumping ahead. I now think that what happened and later chapters actually kind of link the reason, the reason I, I, I kind of focused in on these aspects of imitation. So this whole chapter was about imitation. It was me imitating my advisor, my faux father figure, to run off to Africa in pursuit of something. It was the people at the Concorde Elegance um, buying a Bentley because the queen buys a Bentley. It was the uh, Sapur in Congo imitating what they thought this this kind of European fashion, and very extremely awkwardly, um, which is the fashion of their old colonial masters meant to them like everyone's imitating somewhere even even the little the little um gorilla that's like there's the cutest thing i've ever seen in my goddamn life this taller gorilla beat its chest when you know it's like a couple months old in the in the like the sexual and social like chest pounding thing that the alpha silverback will eventually do to display dominance and territory right they beat their chest in the forest and it's it's dominance it frightens you um 
But this little toddler's doing it. Why is the little toddler gorilla doing it? He doesn't know why. It's they're just doing it because he saw his dad do it. Right. You know, and like I'm running off because I Robert Sapolsky ran off to Africa too. So, the the but the point there, the the bigger point, is that basically I think neuroscience for a century has been imitating physics, and in physics, the history of physics. Elegance is a very, very useful thing. Elegance has led to E equals MC squared, F equals MA. We can land like robots on Mars now that can drive themselves with like perfect accuracy. We can nudge comets out of the way. Like physics works. And it works because you can take disparate observations and collapse them down into like truly simple, harmonious theories. Uh, biology, though, is a clusterfuck. Biology is messy. Biology does has very, very, very few kind of laws and principles that are guiding the most interesting parts of it. And if if you just need an example of this, like the way that I, the way that I kind of cutely, this is like the uh, book tour, like postcard version of this, which is just like, if you don't believe me, take a pigeon and take a bowling ball and drop them off a tower and try to predict, you know, like like. You can you can you can tell because of the laws of physics exactly where that bowling ball is going to go and 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 how fast it's going to go. Drop a pigeon. What's it? What you know? You don't know luck. what it's going to do. Yeah. I mean, maybe if it's a homing pigeon and it grew up like I'm, you know, in in France, it'll go. To but France. isn't it interesting that physics are you know more fundamental by most definitions of fundamental? I mean, it's called fundamental physics, right? Um, and they and out of these simple, elegant laws emerges this complex behavior right yeah. so, so is it this is a different conversation probably but is it is it is it hidden in that simplicity or how does that how does that ha even happen you mean like how it's not a coincidence that the more the more complex your description is the more messy it becomes right but because the goal though is to describe the most amount of things with the least amount of effort right. that's the goal I feel like that's the goal of language. That's the goal of good science. You know, like that's the goal of the attempt to find like mathematical reductions of theories and things and things like that. And so when you do end up having a very, very complex description of a thing, as long as that's the simplest description that describes the most amount of things, I think you've succeeded and you can, you can be elegant. And it's quite possible that we will have rules and laws for how the brain works um, but like there, I, I think what has happened in the field is the peop physics is so successful. You look up to it. A any other science, any other domain of science looks up to physics because of its successes. We split the goddamn atom. The 20th century was also like the century of physics. Mm -hmm. Everything worked like rockets and flight and atoms exploding and, you know, like, we have satellites now. and like all this shit is just it's just physics and it all just worked um and so every other scientific discipline looks up to physics in the same way i think the support looked up to the european fashion and the people in the concord elegance show they're walking around at the little fucking vip tickets to the stupid exclusive academic party you know with bentley show cars and fake astroturf climbing the wall like it's all so fake but it's it's so it feels good because you're imitating something you admire and so that's where i think class that's that's why i think you cannot extract the class conversation from the conversation about simplicity and complexity
because too much of our behavior is about imitation. It's so interesting. I can't help, like there's so much psychoanalysis just asking to be had here. About me? At both of us. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Because when I think of the word elegant, there's no there's no divorcing that word from my image of my father, right? And then we right. or think of these baby gorillas imitating their fathers. And we think of, and I, I can't help wonder, you know, you with the absence of the father figure, and of course you, you've invited some of this and referring to Sapolsky as your father figure, and, but you're, you have a built-in, uh, I don't want to say resentment, but I want to say maybe like suspicion for oh, the paternal. Yeah, and, that's um, very true. And, and, and so I, I, I can't help wonder how much of your you know, attack on elegance is motivated unconsciously by that. Well, I, I also wonder the degree to which, so I, I have a friend whose father um, uh, went to school X, uh, was a professional bike racer, I think dropped out right before the last semester kind of thing, uh, ended up uh, becoming a professional Japanese woodworker and then a professional cyclist and then now makes wine. And then my friend, his son, went to th that same college X, dropped out uh, in the last semester, just like one credit before finishing, ended up becoming a professional bike racer. Ended up as a not Japanese carpenter, but another kind of specialized carpentry, and then makes brandy instead of wine. Uh, I have another friend, uh, uh, his father went to school Y, um, then went off to another school to get an MFA, I think in like creative writing or something in Minnesota. And then he went to that same school, went off, got a MFA in, I think, like poetry instead of creative writing in also Minnesota. And, and both of them, if I asked them, like, hey, are you just following in your father's footsteps? Like, is there any degree to which you think you might be possibly maybe casually following a little bit in your, they'll be like, no, no, no. Like, my dad did creative, creative writing, not poetry. They're like super different. Um, I was like, no, I make brandy. I don't make wine. Uh, but it's like so obvious of all the infinite things that are possible in the universe, you know, like people to kind of tend toward, in some sense, um, uh, the path that is already carved for them. It's like what they know, uh, or rather it's what they're exposed to. And this is certainly by no means a universal claim, right? But it's just like, it does seem to happen occasionally. And an attempt to supersede it too. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so my Such whole thing with the like, I think the lack of a father figure is I don't know who to imitate. Right. Like, I just don't know who to imitate. And that's why I'm writing about my graduate school advisor and these 90s romance, like romancing the stone and Indiana Jones and stuff. Right. Like, I think that what my Tinder date will like is like a, a, a thrilling adventure where I slightly save her at the last moment. And of course, like when it comes down to it at the, the moment of truth, I just like back away. <laughs> when, I, when I was 10, I, I, dr I dreamt that I like stabbed my father in the forehead with a butcher knife and i woke up in terror and i went downstairs and told my father this dream and he was beaming with happiness and he said and you know of course at the time freudianism was you know steeped in the culture and there was it was just the background with which everything was interpreted and he said that's wonderful you must kill your father you, you must, must <laughs> super you know you must superate the father and th i'm so happy you've done this and uh, you've had this dream it's very important and um and then 
I also adopted fathers because mine was far away. And one of the most important father figures in my life was uh, that I adopted fathers was Alexander Coburn, um, who was the great uh, journalist, writer, and uh, my uncle-in-law for almost a decade. And um, I discovered as I became more and more passionate about chess that his first book, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before. Um, so he... Um, he was a Freudian, very surprisingly, because he was very, you know, Marxist, very political. I never thought that he would have flirted with this uh, stuff. But it turns out that in the 70s, when he was the young writer, he was very uh, seduced by Freudian analysis. And he wrote his first book was called Idle Passion. And it was a Freudian takedown of chess as a as a pursuit, as a waste of time, basically, that is taken on by you know, boys that never grow up who just want to just ritually kill the father over and over again, but then aren't satisfied after having had the dream. Like the goal is patricide, right? The yeah, goal it's, of chess? it's, 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 um, ritualized patricide <laughs> enacted over and over again without right. ever, right. Uh, without ever being satisfied with it. And then he had all these other, other wonderful, like Freudian, uh, uh, analyses of of uh, interpretations of the game like there's the there, it's this masturbatory thing we are holding onto these phallic like wooden pieces and at the time uh you know bobby fisher was the greatest chess player in the world and he was taking on the the russian kind of uh dominance of the game of chess and i think i suspect partly alexander coburn being a kind of uh sim, you know the communist sympathizer wanted to take down Bobby Fischer as part of and and Bobby Fischer was someone you'd want to take down too because he was this terrible misogynist he hated women hated his mother and his most famous game when he was young he sacrificed the queen early on to show that he could win without this powerful <laughs> female and 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 women you know famously at the time were not uh, doing as well at chess and Bobby Fischer used this fact to kind of justify his misogyny and he um, he said, well, you see that the only proof I need that, that women are inferior is that the women aren't as good at chess, to which Alexander Coburn responded, women aren't as good at chess because they lack the neurosis to be interested in the game to begin with. Right. Like they don't want to waste their time playing this stupid game. Um, and then my friend Mark Rathall, I told I told him this this about this book because his father was a master chess player and he told each of his four sons that if you ever beat me at chess he told them this when they were four years old if they ever beat them at chess he'd give them a hundred dollars and all of them worked towards this most of them gave up but mark just kept going and and joined the chess club and got better and better and when he was 16 he finally beat his father collected his hundred dollars and stopped playing chess play, yeah. so he actually did it in a healthy way and i told him about this and he's like oh my god you've blown my mind I, i've been telling this story my whole life and the freudian interpretation of it just literally never occurred to me <laughs> so so the the king is the only piece that can't be replicated on the on the board right like you can you can advance a pawn and turn it into any other piece yeah as if they're just like <coughs> assembly line factory produced things but the king you can you cannot advance a pawn to make another king this is true a good point so yeah it's a very it's a very patriarchal game uh, and then there was all these other things like you don't touch the other person's pieces unless it's to take them and I highly recommend this this yeah, book, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Idle Passion. Anyway, um, how how far along are we? No, I think this is a good. Uh, yeah. Do you have anything else you want to say? Nah. 
Oh, Sapolsky. I want to. I want to uh, recommend. Uh, uh, yeah. The the Sean Carroll's uh, uh, podcast uh, had Patrick's uh, father figure, thesis advisor, professor at Stanford, Robert Sapolsky, on just the other day, and he did a, uh, a very. They had a very interesting conversation about whether there's any room for the concept of free will in a scientific uh, neurobiological. You know, the more we learn about science. Uh, and for the very, very close readers out there, anyone who's actually read or is familiar with Sapolsky's uh, uh, writing, the introduction to this. Yeah, your mic was off for a while. Is it back now? It's back now. It is? Okay. Yeah, I think we lost power for a minute. Okay, the we lost power for a minute. Hold on one The switchboard's second. been lit up the whole time. I don't know if that's relevant. I don't understand okay. electricity. There's no relevance at all the brains. Check one. Okay. Um, we are back. I can hear you. Were we gone? We were gone. Oh. We were gone from that moment that we just went. Uh, yeah. Oh, you missed my soliloquy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Why don't we? Why, I think I think there's Robert Sapolsky can take on a whole. That conversation could be a whole episode. Yeah, sure. So Absolutely. let's let's just. Uh, we'll end abruptly. Absolutely. That way I don't have to edit and stitch these things together. Great. Okay. Great. 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 Bye, everyone. <laughs>